For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll speak with physician, engineer, and astronaut Dr. May C. Jemison about delivering the 2019 commencement address at the University of Arizona. U of A students facing finals week get a message of support from some artists who care. Meet an author who's using the Persian fairy tales of her childhood to explore how women are portrayed in mythology. And an essay from Adiba Nelson on the hardest parts of doing a job she loves, being a mom. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Blue Marble is an image of Earth taken in December 1972 from a distance of 18,000 miles. It was taken by the crew of the Apollo 17 spacecraft on its way to the moon. This photo had a tremendous impact on the way people viewed the biosphere of Earth, and it helped to send one teenager in Chicago on a stellar trajectory. May C. Jemison graduated from high school at age 16 and earned degrees in chemical engineering and African and Afro-American studies at Stanford. In 1981, she became an M.D. at Cornell. And in 1992, Dr. May C. Jemison made history as the first woman of color to go into space as part of the crew of the space shuttle Endeavor. On May 10th, she'll be delivering the commencement address at the University of Arizona. I started our conversation by asking Mae Jemison how she describes what it was like to spend almost eight days in outer space. It's so hard to figure out exactly what to say because when you think about space, there is a physical feeling, sort of a psychological feeling, and maybe one, if you go further than that, just the work that you have to do and the importance of it. So for me... um, I had this big smile on my face when we launched because I was thinking of myself as this um, eight-year-old kid from Chicago who, when I was growing up, just assumed I would go into space. And so she would be really excited that the launch was actually occurring. When I looked out the window from time to time and I saw, for example, the Horn of Africa as we passed over it and the earth sort of iridesced from within, I felt very connected with the earth. And when I looked out into space, I sometimes projected myself to a star system maybe 10,000 light years away, and I felt connected with the universe. And perhaps that's the most important feeling that was left for me. I had this sense of calm. I had this sense of belonging. It sounds like it was a comfortable experience then for you to be there. It was comfortable. Um, So I should say a lot of people, you know, when they think about space exploration, You know, it's only about the trip, right? But you spend so much time training before you ever go. I had actually worked on other people's launches and things like that before I left. I was in the first class of astronauts after the Challenger accident. In fact, my application was in when the Challenger accident occurred. So the idea that something could be, quote, unquote, dangerous was was already there. And in my life, over my jobs, 
I've done other things. I worked in a Cambodian refugee camp and went on patrol once with Thai soldiers on the Thai-Cambodian border with the, the Khmer Rouge, um, sort of on the other side. I uh, was the Area Peace Corps medical officer for Sierra Leone and Liberia and at times had to interact with what were pretty serious illnesses. So it was really sort of this issue of understanding what you're doing. And when I was an astronaut, something really interesting happened. I had an opportunity, because I knew my launch date, you know, to tell everybody what I wanted to tell them and to say, I'm exactly where I want to be, so I'm okay with what happens. That's a really interesting place to be. I read that among the experiments that you were tasked with performing on that mission were to look into motion sickness. I wonder if that, in a way, was um, kind of a difficult um, experiment because it made you focus on something that you might otherwise have sort of just gone with. So I was one of the subjects for something called autogenic feedback training exercise method and system. It was developed (laughs) by Dr. Patricia Cowens. Uh, at Ames Research Center. And very interestingly, she was the first person I knew that did this multi-parameter monitoring where she monitored everything. This is 1992, right? We had a watch that showed us, you know, our heart rate, our respiratory rate, skin conductance, and a number of other parameters. It was all built into a suit. But she had a theory that you could learn to control your response to space adaptation syndrome, which is not exactly motion sickness. It's very, it's somewhat different, but everyone goes through it. People uh, sort of feel disoriented. They get nauseated. And so whether or not it actually made me more aware, maybe because part of the exercise was to be aware that something was going wrong before you get to the stage of, you know, yorking it all up. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the scientific phrase? Yes. Okay. That's a technical term. No, but you know, the the thing is, is that some people are not conscious that things are happening to your body. And so she made you much more conscious of what was going on. So if you were getting a little off kilter, you could do something at that time to straighten things up before they go too far. I know that you also work a lot with students these days, and particularly girls who are interested in STEM research and STEM educations. Can you think of a really interesting question that one of these young people has asked you about being an astronaut? Well, you know what? I'm going to leave being an astronaut because the first thing that I did when I left NASA was to start an international science camp called The Earth We Share. It was a science camp. So the students had to work in teams to solve things like predict the hot public stocks of the year 2030, design the world's perfect house, how many people can the earth hold. And they work with students from around the world. And the idea was that we share this planet. And you're always going to have to work with people who may be different than you, whether it's socioeconomically, um, whether it's ethnicity, gender. And how do you do that? And I think working with teens is a wonderful time to do it. So the students would just get the problem. But one group of students in, um, I think in 1997, came up with an answer for how many people can the earth hold, and they worked over four weeks to do this, and they came up with a specific number. I can't remember the number, but it was somewhere around seven to eight billion. 
And they said they were basing it on the fact that they believed that people would continue to be greedy and would not share. This is what students were seeing. So when you ask me what I've learned from students, the idea that they said people have to change, it doesn't mean that we don't get to have wonderful lives. It means that we may have to change the technologies, the things that we do, how much we consume, because if we don't, then the number of us on this planet will be very finite and it's not going to be pretty at the end. Dr. May C. Jemison will deliver the commencement address at the University of Arizona on Friday, May 10th at 7.30 p.m. at Arizona Stadium. On Monday, students on the university campus who were busy with finals received an extra dose of encouragement. It came from a group of artists who are a little-known part of the University of Arizona community. Artworks, it's an outreach program that offers all-day art and dance classes for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. As an annual activity, the artists paint signs with positive messages, like, finals are fun, and you've got this, and then they spread the word and a lot of smiles to everyone passing by. First, I spoke with Artworks director, Yumi Shirai. Artworks is an art studio and a gallery by and for folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities within the Department of Family and Community Medicine. And also we are part of the Sonoran Center for Excellence in Disabilities. And part of the wonderful things that our folks are very good at is cheering. And also we are very good at celebrating what we accomplish. Celebrating. Yeah, that is the big part of Artworks community that we celebrate big. So your artists designed some uh, signs to hold up with some positive messages here for yeah, the students? Yeah, they really have a very great pride in part of the university community. So we really want to support by making the sign with the uh, university color, you know, dark blue and red. And we are with them throughout this final week. So we can get through this week and we can just look forward for the summer for the fun project. How did this idea first come about? Do you remember when you started doing this? You know, I think Blatley is our outreach kind of advocate. He reached out to the athletes and he reached out to the other department and students groups. And they are really, really want to be engaged in any of the campus activities. So I think they are the motivator. And we have a Diana Thompson. She's an outreach coordinator of our program. She always seeks a good opportunity for our folks to be on campus and get involved. So tell me your name, please. My name, Brad. Your name's Brad. Did you paint that one? Yeah. And it says, we believe in you. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Why do you guys want to do something so nice? Nobody asked you to do this. <laughs> You're just shrugging? Jolene. Do you have anybody in your family that has gone to the U of A or goes to the U of A? Me. You. You're a part of the family. Jolene. Oh, how to do. What do you like best about doing this project? Paint. You're always a good painter. And Yumi says that you have reached out to people at the university to ask them about projects you can work on together, like the athletes. Yeah, the athletes. Uh-huh. And baseball. So, uh, baseball players? Baseball players. Jim Dad. Jim Cats? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite sport? Jim Dad. You like the Jim Cats? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, great. Well, this is really fun that you came out today. And we got some pretty good weather for it, too, huh? It's not too hot. No hot. Yeah. Hey, Cody. Hey. So I asked Brad about this. Why do you guys want to do something like this? Nobody asked you to do it. Just to 
wish the um, students good luck on their finals. Have you done this project before? Have you been out here to cheer on the students like last year? I did that once. Uh -huh. And when the students walk by, what do you really want to say to them? I want to say you've got this. Good luck on your final scene. Just want to wish them luck. Well, you're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Cody. <laughs> Could you introduce yourself for me, please? I'm Karen. How long have you been part of Artworks? Uh, five years. Did you help to make some of the signs? Yes, yes, I did. What do you like best about the Artworks community? I like to work there. And what's your favorite thing to do? Draw. Have you made friends at Artworks? Yes. I bet you have. What do you think about Brad? Brad's nice, too. Brad's nice, too. Yeah. We can all agree on that. <laughs> and could you introduce yourself? I'm Kelsey. And what do you do? I'm a student worker here at Artworks. In the time that you've been part of Artworks, do you find that projects like this come naturally to the group, that they want to do things that are this positive and based around just sincerity? Oh yeah, they love the community so much and they have such a big heart and it really kind of helps me be more like that and want to reach out more into the community um, just because of how much they do it. So yeah, it definitely comes naturally for them. Yeah. Um, that's really the underlying thing that I come away from is the sincerity that yeah. if it's not real, they're not interested. No, definitely. And yeah. they'll, they'll tell you too, like, no, we're yeah. not going to do that. And then, <laughs> but most of the time they're really like, yeah, let's do it. And so it's really awesome. We heard from Artworks members Brad, Cody, and Karen, plus Yumi Shirai and Kelsey. The Artworks family presents Dreams, a mixed-media gallery show about goals, dreaming, and imagination. It's open now through July 26th at the Mary T. Paulin Gallery, which is named after Artworks' co-founder. That's located at 1509 East Helen Street. The United States and Iran have had no formal diplomatic relations since 1980, and there's been political tension between the two nations for decades. For many Iranian Americans, the negative perception of their culture is something they hope to overcome by sharing literature, language, and philosophy. Next, Tony Paniagua has an interview with an author and Oro Valley resident about her latest book. Dr. Nushi Motarev, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, and it's nice to be here. You have written a couple of books. The most recent one is called Land of Roses and Nightingales. Where does this name come from? Well, the title comes from because apparently, according to the scholars, when for the first time Western um, scholars came to Persia, because of uh, Persia was full of gardens with roses and flowers and nightingales were chippering and singing, so they called that land, uh, Land of Roses and Nightingales, and I decided to choose that title for my book. And you have seven chapters. They all deal with a woman uh, or a young girl that has been reincarnated. Is that part of the Persian folklore? They are part of the Persian fairy tales, actually. And through my research, individual research, I found out that, yes, in uh, ancient time, 
some Aryans, they believed in reincarnation. So that's what I took the idea from reincarnation. And uh, one girl actually threw out these seven stories and travels through time and space and uh, tell her a story, which is so different from the um, fairy tales because usually fairy tales or folk tales, they have narrator. But I decided that the girl herself needs to tell her own story. And that's why these stories are about her and how she overcomes all the um, difficulties and upheavals. What would be your biggest wish for people to take away from this book? My biggest wish is that for every person, especially young generation and women, um, to be empowered by these stories. Because these stories, uh, the girl in every one of them uh, forgets about herself. She thinks about what she can use to show she's brave. Physically, she's brave. She can do so many things. And most of all, she can use her own mind. Actually, it was interesting even to me that even in mythology, of uh, Greek mythology and, uh, and Roman mythology, um, always a male is the main character, not a female. And coming from Persia <laughs> to have a female character, that really was eye-opening for me. That's another reason I wanted to show it to the Western world that um, we are not really what the media try to portray us. We have more culture than, than they try to give us some credit for. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What led to you leaving Iran? My father wanted me and my sister to be able to support ourselves. I studied in Iran. I studied in um, Germany, Switzerland, and also in this country, in US. And when I received my master's and PhD from Florida State, um, I was supposed to go back to Iran because I had the scholarship from Iran to be a professor over there. So I did go back. However, the regime had changed. And one of the changes, major change, that it was the bitter pill for me to swallow was that I had to cover my head. And that was for me, um, is taking my individual freedom away from me. Please don't take me wrong. I'm not against covering my head. But the way I grew up during the Shah's regime is so much modernism was that way. And my mother didn't cover her head. My grandmother didn't cover her head. So it was very hard for me as an individual to, um, to follow a rule and go back to the seventh century. And also, on the other hand, please keep in mind, Muhammad, the prophet, never ever instructed women or any government to dictate that women wear a scarf or hijab. So that was another reason I didn't want to follow something that even religiously, it was not correct. You've been away from Iran for several decades. Uh, you've lived in Europe and here in the United States. Correct. If you had a, quote, magic wand to do something for your country, your country of birth, what would it be for Iran and for its people? Well, one thing I would wish for them first to have their freedom. 
especially for women, to have their freedom back because uh, individual freedom is very important. I want to believe that my books, especially this one and the other one, Tapestries of the Heart, are my magic ones that I can uh, make known Persia to, um, to the Western world. So they know that we are more than whatever the media portray us. And hopefully we go to the right path and, and Persia becomes free. Dr. Nushi Moradev, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. To hear another story about Iranian culture in Tucson, you can listen to last week's show, where we learned about the Persian language program at the University of Arizona. You can find it at azpm.org. Next, an essay about what it means to be a mom, from the things it brings to what it requires in return. Adiba Nelson, a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee, is an independent contributor to this show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. Here is my truth. I love my daughter more than I love the air I breathe into my own body. If God forbid there were ever a situation where it was my life or hers, I'd save someone the trouble and take my own life. No questions, no hesitations, done. But if you ask me, do I love being a parent? Many times the real answer is no. I know, it sounds awful. And you may have just had that thought that we as moms always have when we hear other women complain about parenting. Why the hell did you have a kid if you didn't want to be a parent? And there are plenty of women in this world who can't have children. How dare you complain? But I implore you, keep listening. You may just find a piece of yourself in my words. The truth is, no, I don't love this job of parenting. I don't love being responsible for another life. The weight of this task is almost unbearable at times. I am charged with making sure I don't raise an entitled mean girl. I'm charged with making sure I fill her cup up with enough self-esteem, confidence, and self-assurance so that she won't seek it out in a partner with lying lips and a cheating heart. I'm charged with making sure she applies herself academically and doesn't back down from educational challenges so that her teachers always see her abilities and potential and not her wheelchair and communication device as limitations. And the list goes on and on with things that as a parent, I am supposed to do and feel. I'll tell you, it's exhausting and heartbreaking. And sometimes it feels like a 1000 pound brick in my brain. I worry if she's eating enough. I worry if she's making friends at school. I wonder if she's grasping and retaining what she's learning at school. If we're at Target and a sketchy character approaches us in the parking lot, I immediately switch into crazy mama bear mode, ready to claw their face off if I have to. I have to make decisions about her therapeutic care and health on a weekly basis that will affect the rest of her life. Literally, the rest of her life. Do you know the weight of having to decide whether or not to use an iPad for communication versus working her to the bone to teach her to talk? It seems trivial, but trust me, it is not. The point is communication regardless of how it happens. But when you desperately want to hear your own child's voice one day say, mommy, I love you so much, or even 
Mommy, I hate this dinner and I want a lollipop instead. The decision seems like a red wire or green wire moment. I'll either survive or it's going to blow up in my face. And in keeping with the notion of being transparent, I also long for the life I thought I might have if I'd never had a child. There, I said it. Now you don't have to. I'll be your huckleberry. Yes, I fantasize about the life I might be leading if I had never gotten pregnant. And in my fantasy, my life is awesome. It is full and rich with experiences and people from distant lands. It is big cities and scrawling green pastures secluded from any and everything. It's high fashion and Chuck Taylors. In my dream world, I love no one romantically, but love everyone fully and hard. This is the life I envision I would have had had I never become a parent. And if you're being 100% honest with yourself, you've had a similar fantasy life in your head for quite some time. It may not look like mine, but it holds in it something you don't have or haven't done, but wish you could or did. And I wanna tell you, that's okay. It's okay to have these thoughts and wish these things and even say them out loud. The International Being a Mom is Awesome Club says it's not, but I'm here to tell you that it 100% is. It is human to long for the almost, to crave the daydream. I call it the grass is different way of thinking. It's not that the grass in your fantasy life is necessarily better, it's just different. It's the grass in Paris, France, as opposed to the grass in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And yes, it would be nice to see what the grass in France looks like. Here's the flip side of it though. Even though I don't love being a parent for the myriad reasons I just gave, I love being Emery's parent. If I could go back to when I was 31 and choose not to get pregnant right then, but know that in 10 years, I could have Emery exactly as she is today, special needs and all, I would do it. I love everything about who she is and how she is. I love the way she rolls her eyes at me when I try to get her to eat zucchini. And I love how she will beat a joke into the ground, laughing harder and harder with each telling of it. Being her parent forced me to take hold of my dream and run with it. She was my push and my shove, my rock and my hard place. My fantasy life is tempered only by the fact that I have this child. But I would be lying to you if I told you that sometimes, Okay, a lot of times. I want to see the grass in France. And if we're being honest with each other, I bet you do too. And that's okay. You can find more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The music was Come Back by Jaime J. Soto, produced by BV Beats. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.